Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Video Games Podcast, and thank you for being here. As always, this is the 59th episode, and we have plenty to talk about this week. And as usual, we will be talking about some stories that are somehow connected to COVID-19, as that's just the world that we are living in right now. Although there was plenty happening in the world of gaming and technology this week, including Microsoft announcing that until at least July 2021, they will be switching to a digital-first format for all internal and external events. Call of Duty Warzone hits 50 million players in around a month on the market, and Google Stadia announces that it will be going completely free to play for the base model. However, the stories that we plan to focus on this week include E3 deciding to forego the digital event that they were planning, and IGN is going to be filling in. Sony finally gives fans a deeper look at some of its next-gen plans with their new controller, the DualSense. And finally, as we love to look at stocks in the business side of gaming, CD Projekt Red gives us a look at their fiscal year 2019 report, and there is plenty to dig into. So there's plenty to talk about, and we will do that right after this short break. Since the official cancellation a few weeks ago, E3 has been telling us that the company was working on ways to bring together the same group in a digital format. However, it seems that the ESA has come to the conclusion that it's best to leave behind 2020 altogether and regroup for 2021. According to Rebecca Valentine from GamesIndustry.biz, the ESA said that they will instead be working with the exhibitors to promote and showcase individual company announcements. We look forward to bringing our industry and community together in 2021 to present a reimagined E3 that will highlight new offerings and thrill our audiences. Does this mean that the ESA couldn't figure out a way to make it work in 2020? And I think based on the self-isolation that everyone is under right now, I would have to lean towards yes. And as we've already seen over the past month with some leaders in the industry, including Microsoft and PlayStation, working from home just doesn't allow you the same level of professionalism that customers have become accustomed to. Last week, Phil Spencer, head of Xbox, sat down with IGN to talk about the Series X and how the situation is affecting it. Except it wasn't a polished production with top-level lighting, sound, and video. Instead, it was an online conference call, and this means that it had some audio issues and some lag, among other things, but it was still great. I don't have any issues with this, as the current state of things has caused many to work outside of their comfort zones, but I am not so sure that the ESA would get the same understanding from the industry if they had technical hiccups that would likely occur if they did a digital event. On the best of days when trying to conference digitally, something goes wrong. People disconnect, audio cuts in and out, and this would put ESA and the E3 greatly out of their comfort zone. I assume that they understand that a lot of people want E3 to fail and it has become in style to hate on E3, especially when they're trying to put together a digital event with the amount of moving pieces from many different companies would just give more fuel to the fire. I think E3 is making the smart choice and completely abandoning 2020 and leaving it for others to rise to the occasion with more experience in delivering digital content. I also find it somewhat funny that they think they are the best place to go for news regarding what the companies will be doing in lieu of E3. I mean, even during E3, I don't go to their site looking for the latest news or reveals as there are plenty of other outlets that can provide top-tier coverage quickly and concisely. 
As for what company will be rising to the occasion and trying to fill that void, late last week, IGN announced Summer of Gaming. Jonathan Dornbush posted an article on IGN explaining how the company plans to offer an event in the place of E3. Although no dates have been published yet, it will be happening in June, and so far there is a large number of developers and publishers that will be taking place in the event. IGN will be collaborating with a number of partners for the Summer of Gaming, including 2K, Square Enix, Sega, Bandai Namco, Amazon, Google Stadia, Twitter, Devolver Digital, THQ Nordic, and more. Expect more details in the coming weeks. The event will include live broadcasts and on-demand programming featuring IGN's editorial coverage of the work of game developers from around the world, the article said. Based on the event still being a few months out, I think the list of participants is pretty great so far, and I assume that more and more will be added in the coming weeks. I mean, even if Microsoft and Nintendo have digital conferences as well, but not decide to take part in IGN in their summer of gaming, it will most likely still be featured on the popular gaming site. Most of the programming will just have to be built around the big publishers. More and more people are turning towards video games for entertainment and escapism. Last week, we saw new records for traffic across all of our platforms. We're excited to bring this global, digital event to our audiences and partners, as this will be an event not to be missed, said the Executive Vice President and General Manager at IGN. Being able to see analytics of that nature certainly makes the decision easy if you are IGN. The other major factor is that this type of content delivery is already very much in the comfort zone of what IGN does. It will be interesting to see how this changes things moving forward, especially if companies see great results during IGN and their summer of gaming. And this might be the start of IGN getting into the conference business as they are already a major hub for gaming news. As it seems so far, Sony and their approach to the PlayStation 5 has been somewhat strange and not quite hitting the same high notes that Xbox has been achieving with their Series X reveals. At CES, we got nothing but a PS5 logo reveal, which was quite underwhelming on its own, but it also looked identical to the previous iterations before it. Then, just a few short weeks ago, Sony shared with us their supposedly intended talk for GDC, which was overly technical and intended for developers. Most fans were not happy with that presentation, even though they announced that it would be a very dry and technical talk. Hype levels were still grew, and that led to disappointment. Sony continued the road to PS5 with strange decisions by unveiling the new controller which they are calling the DualSense. It was unveiled on the PlayStation blog on a random Tuesday afternoon with no notice and this was likely in response to the reception of their GDC planned talk. Sony was clearly feeling gun shy after the technical specs talk with Mark Cerny drew ire of the internet. It's expected that the internet will hate on everything you do. They did announce it a day in advance, but that did allow levels of hype to build up, even if it was only for a day, but it felt like there was some extra animosity towards the presentation. I think this explains the surprise drop of the PS5 controller. Even though the post from Hideki Nishino, Senior VP of Platform Planning, was short, it still said a lot based on looks, features it has, and it features it doesn't have. The name DualSense is a departure from the commonly used DualShock, which has basically been a staple of the system's controller since it was first introduced a few years after the release of the original PlayStation. Eventually, the DualShock gained enough popularity and became the standard by phasing out the original. 
Since the introduction of the DualShock, the only time it hasn't been included with a new console is when the PS3 launched with the 6-axis, which wasn't well received by fans due to its lack of vibration, which wasn't included for legal reasons. The PS3 eventually amassed strong sales with over 80 million units sold, but it was very slow out of the gate, likely in large part to its price, which was deemed very high at the time, its different cell processing, and its lack of DualShock inclusion. I just don't think you can underestimate the value of a great controller. Sales shouldn't have been slow, especially when you're following up on the best-selling video game system of all time. The PS2 sold over 155 million units, thanks in large part to its system containing a DVD drive. At the time, it cost basically as much to purchase a DVD player, which made the purchase of a PS2 a very easy choice. My reasoning for comparing the PS3 to the PS5 is that the two systems are beginning to show a lot of similarities. As the saying goes, those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. The first similarity is following a massive success. As mentioned, the PS2 was a monster, and it's likely never to be repeated again at 155 million units. And the PS4 has been nothing but a winner this generation. It started out strong with their best controller and a simpler console architecture that allowed third parties to easily make games for the system. So far, the PS4 has sold around 106 million units as of December 31st, 2019, and will likely finish as the third best-selling console only behind the Nintendo DS and the previously mentioned PS2. The other similarity is that the PS3 and the PS5 will both launch without a dual shock. And as mentioned, the PS3 shipped with the 6-axis and the PS5 will be shipping with the DualSense. I felt like that information was irrelevant before diving into the DualSense itself, and the first thing that you notice is the design. It does seem like it is heading more towards the shape of a standard Xbox One controller with a less pronounced side handles, and it does still include the PlayStation Signature parallel thumbsticks, though. They've talked about them before, but they mentioned the adaptive triggers that will improve the immersion. The share button that Sony was ahead of its time on when it created the DualShock 4 has been replaced with a Create button. They didn't explain what the specific changes were, but said, With Create, we're once again pioneering new ways for players to create epic gameplay content. We'll have more details on this feature as we get closer to launch. One of the added features that I'm not too sure on just yet is that the DualSense will include a built-in microphone array. They aren't trying to replace the headset, but they want to make it easy to jump into a quick chat if you need. And I think this is much better than that ridiculous single earbud that the PS4 shipped with that sounded terrible and could easily get misplaced. And I can't stand when playing games and you go into a lobby and all you hear is feedback from cheap headsets, loud musics, dog barking, or anything else that forces you to have to mute all. I hope that this is designed in a very smart way that only picks up uh, a certain audible level or something within a certain range. Finally, you have the two-tone color scheme and the design of the controller that makes you wonder what the PS5 will look like in comparison to it. I myself am hoping for something much more traditional and less energy drink or science fiction space station. I personally love the look of the Xbox Series X as it doesn't look like a toy but instead looks like any other modern day device like an adult would own such as a router or a streaming box or a digital assistant. I was almost positive that with the recent release of the PS4 back button attachment that paddles on the back of the PS5 controller was going to be the standard, but it seems as though they are likely just testing the market to see how it was received and whether or not they should create a DualSense Pro analogous to the Xbox in their Elite controller. 
They said, we also took thoughtful consideration into ways to maintain a strong battery life for the DualSense's rechargeable battery and to lessen the weight of the controller as much as possible. And this says two things. One, it's going to be a heavier controller and two, the battery will be rechargeable. Not explicitly mentioned, but based on the picture, it does look to include a USB-C, which is great news as it is becoming the technology norm and it charges much faster. The blog post ended with Sony Interactive Entertainment President Jim Ryan giving a statement saying that the DualSense marks a radical departure from our previous controller offerings and captures just how strongly we feel about making a generational leap with the PS5. The new controller, along with many innovative features in the PlayStation 5, will be transformative for games, continuing our mission at PlayStation to push the boundaries of play now and in the future. To the PlayStation community, I truly want to thank you for sharing this exciting journey with us as we head toward the PS5's launch in holiday 2020. We look forward to sharing more information about the PS5, including the console design, in the coming months. It's clear that Sony is aware of just how different this controller looks compared to their previous iterations. I'm hopeful that all of the changes will be for the best, but more importantly, things still look like they are on schedule for the release of the PS5 this holiday. One of the most anticipated games of the year is without a doubt Cyberpunk 2077. Although we were supposed to be playing it this month, it was sadly delayed until September, and that was before the pandemic. This week, CD Projekt Red revealed their fiscal year 2019 earnings report, and there is plenty to look at and plenty of information regarding Cyberpunk 2077 that can be taken from the report and their statements as well. Before digging into anything cyberpunk related, let's take a look at the bigger picture of the company based on their financials from 2019. Overall, things looked pretty great for the Polish company as they made $124.7 million in 2019 with $101 million of that coming from digital sales, 38.8 coming from GOG. And I think that's great news for the company as their total digital sales accounted for over 81% of their total revenue and digital just means more money for the publisher. The benefit of this is obvious, but more money allows them to grow and reinvest in the company, which in the end is hopefully providing the gamer with better experiences. The company's digital sales were up quite significantly from 2018 when it was only $80.3 million. This is amazing news as during the conference call after the earnings report, they were asked about the benefit of digital versus physical and they responded by saying, for the initial period of Witcher 3, market sales on each digital copy, we were earning twice as much as on physical. They did speak on how some factors affect this, including royalties and fixed marketing costs, but it's clear that digital greatly helps the developer. The company has demonstrated the value of patiently producing a top-tier title as The Witcher 3 continues to sell extremely well since its release back in 2015. The Witcher 3 sold around 6 million units in 2019, which was in large part thanks to the Switch launch and the Netflix show starring Henry Cavill, said President Adam Kaczynski in his opening remarks. The Witcher 3 was delayed and supported post-launch with some free and paid DLC and things have turned out quite well and it looks like Cyberpunk will be on the same path. 
As for if the title will be delayed and how it's progressing toward its September release, Adam Kaczynski said, Since mid-March, we have been working from home while ensuring continuity of all of our operations. Our goals haven't changed. First and foremost, we intend to release Cyberpunk 2077 in September. We feel motivated and have the necessary tools at our disposal to meet this goal. The senior VP of business development answered many questions regarding where the company stood with Cyberpunk 2077. When answering some of the written questions, he noted that the game is in a complete form. It's done, and it's all bug fixing and polishing. In terms of QA testing, it's about 130 to 150 people working on it right now. And I think this is amazing to hear for gamers and for investors as the company took an early approach to the pandemic and had everyone work from home before the epidemic hit Poland. And finally, as for whether or not the company is concerned with launching in the fall, which is typically a crowded time during a regular year, even with the possibility that blockbuster titles like The Last of Us 2 might be released in September or somewhere near Cyberpunk 2077, they said, we're not really worried. You're never launching in a time that's exclusive to you. There's no such thing. September has been a very competitive period, and we've always been aware of that. We believe that we are launching a must-have title. We don't know how many titles will pop up in that window, but we're not planning to move our dates just because somebody else is going to land in that window. So this is all great news if you're looking forward to Cyberpunk 2077 this fall. That's going to be everything for the Video Games Podcast this week. Thank you very much for giving us a listen and giving us a chance. I hope you're staying home, staying safe, and enjoying some great games in the meantime. There are plenty games to play right now, and there always will be, even if there are delays there will always be something amazing to play. Delays happen for a reason. Everyone is human. Um, if you're looking for a fun co-op puzzle game on the Switch, then check out our review for Good Job, which was shown at the Direct Mini a few weeks ago. I will post a link in the description. And on that note, please remember to be nice to your fellow gamer, and more importantly, be nice to your fellow human. <laughs> <laughs>